You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. Let's get a perspective on the markets through the eyes of Joanne Bainham, who is from Sterling Private Wealth in Cape Town. I've recently started asking people, have they got a graph of historical geopolitical events and market reactions. So you've got the, the S&P 500, for example, going up and down as it does, and then you get uh, the Iraq war, and then you obviously get the dip, and then what happens afterwards. I'd love to overlay geopolitical events with the performance of a global stock market, MSCI or S&P 500, and compare it with what's happening now on the Ukraine-Russia border and say to people, okay, it's going to dip, but it won't last forever. So therefore go back to fundamentals. That's my opening gambit. What do you say, Joanne? Okay, well, that's a very difficult thing to call. What what I can tell you, historically, markets have tended to go higher after these geopolitical events than lower. Hmm. So there, there is some stats I've seen it, and I can't off the top of my head remember them. But if you're going back to all previous political events, say 95% of the time within sort of six months, markets are higher. So the bottom line for most commentators is don't take geopolitical events too seriously because you tend to be okay. If you just hang on to your portfolio, you can't time the short term because nobody knows, but longer out, you seem to be okay. That seems to be the rule of thumb. However, every time is different. So who knows? You know, this time round, if Russia does invade Ukraine, we've got a big problem on the inflation front. Yeah. Uh, and problem. what are the implications of that? A big problem because of the gas prices and the fact that Europe relies on gas from Russia still. So it does t- change the picture somewhat. It also seems to impact oil prices because Russia is a huge oil producer. So who knows? I mean, I think on top of that, you've got the Russian-Ukraine story happening. You've also got the Fed talking about having to raise rates because they're slightly concerned about inflation. So it's not just a geopolitical event on its own. There are other things happening. So, yes, I can't answer that question. I don't know how markets react. We know historically they tend to go up. But, you know, is it six months? Is it 12 months? Is it 18 months? Is it two years? Who knows? I, I, we're not in that game. It's too difficult to predict. And alongside what, what that, I can gra- tell you, sorry. Uh, before you go on, alongside that graph that I just described, my theoretical graph with the overlay of geopolitical events against a major global index, uh, what about rising bond yields versus uh, stock markets? Because everyone says, well, money's more expensive. But on the other hand, the fact is that the reasons money is the reason money is more expensive is because inflation is going up for. A couple of good reasons, apart from the bad reasons of uh, supply constraints, etc. It's going up because economies are booming. Look at the United States, 5.5% GDP. So maybe people say, well, if they're raising interest rates, that means the economy's doing well. So that's very good for equities. Okay, so there are just so many things going on at the moment. You've got the Fed potentially raising rates and the market's pricing anything between 25 and 50 bips at the next meeting, okay, Mm. instead of March. You've also got the 10-year Treasury falling in price relative to the rise in the two-year Treasury. So if the two-year is rising by more than the 10-year is falling, you get a yield gap starting to narrow. And a lot of people at the moment are concerned that the Fed may raise rates too much and bring on a U.S. recession. So whilst at the moment U.S. economic data is strong, the fear is if the Fed raises by too much, the date that they will bring on a recession. And if you look at the longer end of the bond curve in America, it's actually not going up that much. In fact, if you look at the spread, it's actually narrowing. They call it term premium is narrowing. And when term premium starts to fall, people start getting very worried about future economic growth. Okay, so there's a lot going on at the moment. There's a big fear the Fed raises by too much. 
Now, the interesting thing on top of all of this, just to confuse the picture, mm. the Fed is continuing to do quantitative easing. In other words, it keeps buying U.S. bonds. Okay. Yes, but at, so a, at, 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 a, at a lesser rate. I mean, when I say rate, I mean at a, at, in lesser increments. In other words, I mean it's it's going. What is it going from 140 billion a month down to uh, a much smaller figure? But the fact is, it is still supporting certain asset classes within that framework. It is, but what it should be doing at the moment, because if you look at the longer end of the bond curve in America, those yields should be higher. And to your point, if economic growth is strong. The long end is quite a bit higher than the short end, and that con that conveys the impression that economic growth is good. What they should be doing is stop buying those bonds. If there's less demand for those bonds and more supply, the yield should start rising, and everyone will feel a lot happier about life. So they should stop it altogether. So yes, they're buying less, but they're still buying. In fact, some people today are arguing that's a good note out from Credit Suisse, saying that actually they should start selling these bonds and cause mm. yields at the top end to start rising. Yes. Because here's the interesting conundrum, right? If you look at where the inflation is coming from the States, it's been goods inflation. This is the whole thing to do with COVID. People haven't left their houses. And there's been a huge, much more demand for goods. And services have fallen. But as the economy starts to rally, we're starting to see service inflation coming through. We're starting to see rental inflation picking up. We know labor inflation is picking up around the world. How do you control those two areas? Well, one of the ways you can control that area is to have the long end of the curve start to yield, start to rise, which makes asset prices fall, particularly housing, and then causes rental inflation to fall down. So the Fed desperately needs, not only do they need to raise rates at the short end to curb, curb inflation expectations, but they also need the long end to rise so that asset prices start to come off the boil because asset prices are leading, leading to rental inflation. And then on top of that, you've got the whole Bitcoin NFT movement, where a lot of people don't want to work at the moment because they're too busy trading the markets. If they can't trade the markets anymore, they might go back to work. And then on the top of that, you've got the other aspect of people retiring early because they've made so much money in the markets. Well, if, if their asset prices start to fall, maybe they'll retire a bit later. And then suddenly, the whole labor participation rate, you have more people coming to the labor market, and then you have less pressure on labor. So to the point, Lindsay, there are so many moving parts at the moment, and I think the Fed's in a very, very tricky spot because if they raise rates by too much, they bring on a recession. If they don't raise rates enough, people say they're behind the curve and inflation runs out of control. But they've, they've, they've made, so it's very difficult. What you're saying is that they've potentially mismanaged the whole situation. Maybe they should have, should have recognised, like myself and a lot of my commentators on this podcast site have, have said, it's, it's going up, it's not transitory, it's not transitory. And almost everybody I spoke to, there's one person that actually was with Jay Powell, the, the chair of the Fed, but most of them have said, what are you talking about? Look at your screen, trade what you see on the screen, Mr. Powell, because prices are going up. It's almost as though he's been sober for sober all week and he suddenly decides to go out on a Friday night and binge drink. He is suddenly going to binge on raise, raising interest rates. I think he's mismanaged the situation, him and his team. Is that uh, outlandish? I know, I, he's, look, I know he's not listening, but no, uh, I don't, do you see what I'm saying? I, I don't think it's outlandish at all. I, I do think they should have been raising rates a long time ago. And interestingly enough, emerging markets have been raising rates. So, you know, everyone wants to point a finger at emerging markets and not being particularly impressive when it comes to monetary policy. I think they've been a lot better this time around than developed markets. They, absolutely, they should have raised rates. If you raise rates earlier, you don't have to raise them as much later. That's pretty obvious, right? Yes, it is. But the market, but at the moment, the market's telling the Fed 
if you're not careful, you could bring on a recession. And I think it's a very, very tricky spot for them. They shouldn't be in this position where they're, they're being forced to think, what on earth do we do now? So interestingly enough, they, they, their minutes of their meeting came out last night, of their last meeting. Yes. And the markets sort of, uh, some comment on Bloomberg says, markets rally because they're not as hawkish. Well, I thought completely the opposite. I did. I thought if you read the, I think if you read what the Fed said, the Fed said, um, absolutely, if, if inflation start, keeps surprising, we're going to be having a less, lot less accommodative. You know, I think you talk about quantitative tightening and potentially rate rises of 50 bips at March. But they went on to say these are the things we're worried about. We're worried about zero COVID in China because that clearly has supply dynamics in terms of the supply chains. We're worried about geopolitical risk in Russia and Ukraine because of the whole energy complex. We're worried about the fact that productivity is falling and wages are rising faster than productivity is rising by. And we're worried, but the one thing they're really worried about is inflation expectations because then it becomes sticky and then you really worry about things. So I think the Fed is not remotely as calm as everyone thinks they are. No, I, I agree think with you. I pretty nervous. They can't go out there and say in the minutes, uh, by the way, after we uh, we had a coffee break and we've said uh, <laughs> we've, we've got to raise by three, 4% over the next uh, 18 months or something. They're not going to say that. So if you read between the lines, the fact that they were so hawkish and the market thought they were a bit dovish. No, they were so hawkish, I think, is a sign that um, the hawkishness was maybe on the statement around about 40%, but in fact, they were around about 80%. I do believe you. I agree with you entirely. I think they are terrified of what's going to go on and how they've mismanaged it, my opinion only. Yeah, of course. I do think they are. I think they are genuinely worried. And then on top of that, you've got the geopolitical issue in, in, happening in Russia at the moment. Mm. So I think about half an hour ago, there was a headline across Twitter and Bloomberg that um, apparently Russia's attacked a kindergarten. There's been mortar shells being attacked and, and children hurt. And this is what they're saying in Ukraine. Now, who knows if it's true or not? But remember, they were de-escalating yesterday. Or was it they two weren't days ago? They, they were weren't de-escalating. De let, let, me, let me unpack this for you because I, I, I have a, a sad life where I watch a lot of um, news and read a lot of news stories. The West put out the... Uh, led by Biden and his and his mob saying they, they could attack within the next 48 hours. And uh, then Zelensky, the Ukrainian leader, said, well, it's going to be February the 16th. So what did um, Putin do? <laughs> he said to himself, OK, uh, this, this is quite funny. Let me get an even longer table than I had with uh, President Emmanuel Macron <laughs> of, of France. I get a longer one and get my um, the foreign minister, what's his name, Sergei Lavrov, Lavrov whatever his name is. Lavrov. I'll sit at the end. Yeah, yes. exactly. And we'll get the television cameras in and it'll be live and it's obviously scripted and choreographed and Putin said to him do you think there's any chance that we can solve this problem um, diplomatically and Lavrov says yes of course we can we can do this this and this so the next day they said okay we're going to start with let's let's put out the idea that we're withdrawing troops on the very day that everyone said they were going to invade it was just a bit of fun from from Putin but my point to a commentator last night which I suddenly had an epiphany is if he says, can we solve this situation diplomatically? He's saying there isn't a situation. These are just military exercises. So by saying, can we solve a problem? He has admitted that there is a problem. And so we know, and this isn't a, this didn't happen a month ago. This has been going on for a year, these troops arriving and these troops uh, setting up their positions and these tanks and helicopters being uh, shipped in. This is not something that has just just suddenly come into Putin's head because he's a nut job. No, this is a this is a calculated move, and he will invade Ukraine. 
That's my okay. I mean, that's from the, my rant. From the opposite side. I mean, no, I, I think you're right. I mean, there clearly is a situation going on board, and I've watched interviews of people in the Ukraine who said the Russians have been pretty much there on our border for eight years. Yes. Uh, and what do you expect us to do? We can't be worried every time there's a new threat because we have to live our lives. Okay. So as you point out, it's not new news. Okay. But you've got to ask yourself. Uh, I, I don't think Putin is an idiot. I think he's an incredibly no. clever man. He's probably one of one of the richest men in the world from from everything I'm reading. And why would he do this? What does he want? He wants Ukraine to say they won't join NATO. That's what he wants. Okay. He doesn't want NATO on his back. To, garden. He, he wants them out the way. And I, I don't see him invading Ukraine. I mean, it's famous last words. I just think he's a giant game of chess here and he's trying to figure out what he can get out of it. He knows he controls the gas pipelines at the moment. He wants Ukraine to stand down the NATO issue. And if you were Putin, wouldn't you try and bring in one of your Russian counterpoints and, and get them to be elected in Ukraine somewhere and rather run it from inside? Why attack? He's... I think Putin loses too much here. I really do. I think he, at the moment... He has it all in his power. He's got the oil price in his power, the gas in his power. Why do this? He's still negotiating. Because the price of oil and gas will go up, no, number one. Number two, he's got a new customer in President Xi because they're building a new pipeline between Russia and China. So he's saying, well, if the West don't want our gas and if Nord Stream 2, the pipeline into Western Europe, is going to be scuppered by Biden because of any um, military aggression, uh, then, I've, then I've got an outlet in the opposite direction. In other words, to the east. And don't forget this man. If you have a look at this man, firstly, he's short. Short. And Napoleon and Hitler were both short. Secondly, he's ex-KGB. He goes out on motorbikes bare-chested. He goes out with Harley-Davidson gangs bare-chested. He rides horses. He goes fly fishing. All of... You know, practically naked. He wants the he wants the old Soviet Union back. He wants to restore the pride, what he sees as the pride of the Russian people, although many of the Russian people, of course, don't like that. But do you see what I mean? It's not just about economics. It's about, I don't know, ego. Joanne, you've met small men, haven't okay. you? But, but get, <laughs> I have. But, but my point, though, Lindsay, is I get all that, and that is the way the West portrays him, and anyone who stands up to him is slowly destroyed killed. because you can't take, yeah, killed, thank you. Uh, and we know this happens. But on the other side of the equation, you have Boris Johnson, whose popularity is rapidly declining. Mm. You have Biden, whose popularity, I think, is at an all-time low yes. for a pre sitting president. What do you do when that happens? Well, a war is a great thing. It takes people's minds off the real problem. And I guess there's another conspiracy theory there. I mean, one side is Putin wants the old Russia back. That's what he stands for. And I'm saying to you, on the other side of the equation, you've got Biden and Boris itching for a war. It's not a great combination. OK, so we can discuss this for hours. The reality is neither you or I know how this is going to play out. But what we do know is that risk is rising in markets. So back to your earlier questions, what happens longer term? Longer term doesn't really matter. But on top of everything, you've got a Fed that's genuinely worried about inflation right now. So from a portfolio construction, let's bring it back to portfolios and how we run client money. I, I think at the moment it makes sense to have quite a lot of cash and inflation-linked type assets in your portfolio. So if you are worried about a potential invasion in Russia, having some oil is probably a good idea in your portfolio, having oil energy companies. It does some sort of portfolio, you know, 
something different in your portfolio that will go up if markets fall, diversification. You probably want to have some cash. Maybe I don't know which currency you want to hold it in because the dollar seems to go all over the place at the moment, but you want to have some cash. And you don't want to be fully invested in equities. And on top of everything else, if this does blow over and inflation remains sticky, you want to be in the value side of the market because that's where prices are cheaper than the growth side of the market. You don't want to be buying expensive assets in an environment where liquidity is going to be coming out of the system. And I think the biggest story today is the declining liquidity environment we're currently in. And I just don't see the Fed at the moment changing tack completely because I think for the first time in ages, the Fed's hands are tied. And one of the things we've been debating a lot with fund managers here is, is the Fed put over? And I still think for the short term, the Fed does not have your back. I really don't think the Fed does. If you're relying on the Fed to come marching and saving the day, I just don't see it happening at the moment. Okay, so in other words, what you're saying is that even if there is a stock market, a, a pullback of substantial um, uh, amounts, the, the, the Fed is not going to suddenly say, okay, well, we'll save you by pumping more liquidity into the market and cutting interest rates because that would be detrimental and that would make inflation, ri inflation rise even further and even, even faster. So what you're saying is they've given up. They said you've had, how many years has it been now? 14 years of stimulation, yeah, 14, years. 14 years of stimulation, Joanne, and suddenly they're saying no, no more. So that's a whole legion of traders, a whole legion of people that have never seen rising interest rates. How do they behave? Well, we'll, we'll wait and see, I think. We will, but I also think, I mean, the reality is the market say for 20% that, you know, we can change our minds about this because there's a consumer confidence aspect to it. There's an... It, it, aspect of oh dear what happens to economic growth and markets fall too much but i guess where i'm coming from is if you're relying on the fed to step in every time the market gets a wobble at the moment i think you should be thinking twice because i think at the moment the fed is genuinely worried about inflation and then on top of that if you look at the high yield debt market we are starting to see some pressure on the credit markets in the us that's the thing that we should be watching more carefully the fed watches that more than it watches the stock markets if we start seeing credit spreads start to rapidly rise then I think the Fed comes back in and tries to save the day. But right now, that's not really happening. So that's the, that's the one thing I'm watching quite closely. And yet it's picking up, but it's not running out of control yet. But the stock market itself, I don't think that's the precursor to say the Fed comes in and saves the day. And what you said that we've had the last couple of years, buy the dip. I, I think in the short term, it's what we call sell the rip. I, I think that's more the trade we're probably going to currently see for a couple of months still. Who knows where it ends? Because I think ultimately inflation comes under control. Inflation goes to a higher level than we've seen in the past. But actually, bizarrely, if inflation sits sort of between 2 and 3%, that's very good for stock markets. So you could have a tail of two halves. You could have a tail of the six, first six months, markets are very jittery, worrying about inflation, worrying about interest rates. And as inflation starts to peak and come down the second half, you could say markets will start to think, hmm, this looks interesting. Let's look at these value shares again. Maybe economic growth is better than we thought. Maybe there isn't a recession. But again, Lindsay, you and I have both been in the markets for a long time. Nobody's that clever. Um, and markets will often make idiots of us all. Hmm. But, but that's certainly in the short term. I, I'm certainly not going out and buying lots of risk assets. Speaking about clever people and, idiot, uh, and idiots and also highly paid people, you spend your life or a lot of your life going around and gleaning ideas and strategies from South African fund managers and international fund managers. Have you been to any meetings since we last spoke? Uh, no, no recent meetings, but again, just to people who haven't heard me lately, the local fund managers are quite bullish their assets, and year to date, they've been right because SA equities are outperforming global equities, and the RAND is incredibly strong. 
I did a very interesting chart on my Twitter profile. Um, yes. Just for those who want to watch me, it's Mad About Markets. Got to love that, Mad About Markets. And I showed a chart of the Commodity Producers Index, just it's the MSCI Producers Index versus yes. the JSC. Uh, and they could be one in the same line. Yeah. So what you're seeing in the last sort of two, three years, five years now is that commodity shares have started to go up because of China and because of um, supply deficits. And if you really, you know, in that environment, if commodities do well and if value does better, the JSC could actually hold up very nicely relative to world markets. It's a huge commodity call at the end of the day. So, yeah, local fund managers are pretty bullish their asset class. The other one that's pretty bullish is SA fixed income. Now, admittedly, you know, as U.S. Treasuries rise, that gap narrows, but you've still got very attractive yields here. And as long as the commodity cycle stays firm, which is a big if, you know, our trade surplus continues to look good, which is good for our budget surplus, well, our budget deficits here. It's also good for in terms of our funding in South Africa. So there's quite a lot of like pretty good stories here happening at the moment. So yeah, I can see why SA bonds remain a very big part of um, balanced funds in SA. But for me, offshore still remains the place you want to have for your long-term money, because structurally, I still think we've got massive problems here. So there's a short-term portfolio decision versus a long-term portfolio decision. And, you know, if you're looking after legacy funds for your children and you, your children plan to live overseas one day, I still think it makes a lot of sense to have a lot of money offshore. Joanne, fantastic analysis. Thanks. Let me do it again. Oh, no, but Lindsay, before you go... No, no, wait a second. Wait, 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 okay, go on then. Yeah, we'll, we'll cut this out. Yes, go on. So, Lindsay, that's portfolio construction, but a bit of fun here. I don't know if your listeners are, are, do play Wordle. I play it every morning now. I've become quite obsessed. I do too. Uh, I, I got it this morning. Wasn't it Shake or Shape or something? Oh, that's a you spoiler. You can't give the answer away. Oh, no, you can't sorry. do that. Okay, okay. But, but, but what I find so interesting about Wordle, and it's more to do with um, investments, mm. it tells you a lot about your trading strategies if you try and get it in two or you try and do it slowly in four. And I think that says a lot about whether you're a short-term or long-term investor, whether you're a trader or you, you know, you're all about the quick buck quickly and then it's one or six, or do you try to constantly get three or four and get the consistent returns? Uh, and think about that when you play Wordle next. It's a lot about your mindset. And when we look after clients' money, it's more about capital preservation, looking after your long-term returns, and not getting too worried about the short-term hype. Well, the Wordle thing was a bit obscure, uh, Joanne, but I, I see what you're saying. And do you think it's become more difficult since the New York Times took it over? Uh, because there was the, a word the other day, uh, cynic. Humour. Uh, no, <laughs> cynic. <laughs> C-Y-N-I-C. I mean, for goodness sake, I mean, I battled. I think I got it on the 6th or 10th or, or, or something, but uh, uh, okay, it is well, good fun. The, I, I failed that one. I didn't get it. It was too hard. <laughs> 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 but for, for those, it, it's a great way to start your day, get your brain working. But I do think it tells you a lot about how you would react to market movements. And if you're all about the short-term gains, yeah. think about that in terms of how you play it and how you run your own money. And on the Wordle thing, just before we leave it, uh, because it's fascinating, you know, Twitter, you, how many uh, characters can you have on Twitter now? 140, isn't it? Or is it more? Well, has, well, I, I can't remember. Well, I think it's... Okay, so I think if you're famous, it's more, and if you're not famous, it's 140. Okay, but anyway, it's gone up from the, the, the original uh, number because people wanted to, to write more. Do you think that Wordle will eventually go Wordle 6, Wordle 7, in other words, longer words? What do you reckon? Oh, it's entirely possible. I mean, but at the moment, I think 5 is 
a lot of people can play it. It gets to six or seven, then you, a lot of people will just give up. <laughs> it just becomes too hard. Joanne <laughs> <Jaren> Bainham <laughs> is from Sterling Private Wealth in Cape Town. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organisation, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.